Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told. And you are among friends. Marcus Allen from Nexus Magazine is here for the full two hours to discuss the possibility the Apollo lunar landings were a hoax. Like many others, Marcus Allen watched the Apollo moon landing live on television. And at the time, he applauded the evident success of those missions. After attending a lecture many years ago which questioned the validity of the moon landings, Marcus decided to carry on his own research. He is the British distributor and publisher of the UK edition of Nexus magazine. Nexus, of course, deals with news and information that's overlooked, unreported, or ignored by the mainstream media. Subjects covered include hidden history, future science, alternative health issues, conspiracies, and UFOs. And a great pleasure to welcome Marcus Allen back to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Marcus. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Richard. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. So now, how many years ago was it that you first attended that lecture that kind of turned your worldview around? It was in the early 90s. I think it was 92. It was in Glastonbury. Now, most people are familiar with Glastonbury for the music festival. But this is uh, a different uh, series of lectures that are held in Glastonbury regularly. And it was just one. He was talking about something quite different. He was talking about megalithic architecture, I believe it was. But he's showing a lot of photographs, and he just almost in passing said, well, of course, you know all those photographs allegedly taken on the moon. He said, they weren't taken on the moon. They couldn't have been. I thought, what is he talking about? What a stupid thing to say. Now, I was trained as a photographer in London uh, back in the 60s, so I was familiar with the cameras that I subsequently discovered were used, the Hasselblad cameras, the films that were used, Kodak Ektachrome transparency material, black and white film. I was familiar with all that. I knew what cameras could and couldn't do, and I knew what film could and couldn't record. So I went out and bought a set of photographs. Because this is before the days of the Internet, which you can you can download anything you like now. You can download every single photograph allegedly taken on the lunar surface now if you want to. But at that time, I had to go and buy some, which I did. And I looked at them. And I thought, whoa, I can see what he's talking about. I can see there's a problem here. Because the just the, the half a dozen photographs that I looked at, uh, many well-known photographs, man on the moon and... Aldrin coming down the ladder and the Apollo 15 lunar, uh, lunar rover and all that. They were just sort of basic photographs. But I could see there was a slight problem because photographic film has to be exposed correctly, especially if it's a reversal film, i.e. transparency material. If it's not exposed correctly, you ruin the photograph, you've got to start again. And these photographs were brilliant. I mean, they were, in my view, almost professional-level photographs but they were supposedly taken by astronauts who were in a place they'd never been to before. So I was I was intrigued enough to follow it up and discover a little bit more about Apollo and the conditions on the moon and everything that went along with that. And the more I discovered, the more I found that there were anomalies in the photographs. There were anomalies in the story. 
And it just didn't seem to hang together the way it should have been, because if something doesn't seem right, it may well not be right. Just for the record, do you believe that the photographs were likely taken elsewhere, not on the moon, but that it is possible or not possible that man landed on the moon? That's a good point, because there is a quite distinct difference between the two. My view is that the photographs could not have been taken on the lunar surface, and we'll come to the reasons why that is the case maybe a bit later. As to whether man has landed on the moon, I have seen no evidence that I can find to show that that has happened, other than what NASA, God bless them, tell us happened on Apollo, because no other nation has claimed that humans have landed on the lunar surface. There have been several nations which have uh, landed unmanned craft on the lunar surface, and the first to reach the moon with uh, an unmanned satellite was actually the Soviet Union in 1959. Then there were a series of unmanned uh, craft from America and from the Soviet Union that landed on the moon. Landing an unmanned craft on the moon is not a problem. I don't dispute any of that. What I do find a problem is landing humans on the moon and then getting him back to earth that is the real difficulty i have in accepting as being true all right so let's focus no pun intended on the photographs first of all as you say you're familiar with the hasenblatt camera that was the camera that was used now neil armstrong and buzz aldrin they wandered around supposedly on the surface of the moon for about two and a half hours now, we're just talking about the Apollo 11 landing. How many photographs did they supposedly take in two and a half hours? On Apollo 11, there was only one camera that was being used to take all the photographs on the lunar surface. As you say, that uh, Armstrong was on the surface for just, just under two and a half hours, Buzz Aldrin slightly less time. And in that time, they took 121 individual photographs on the lunar surface. Now, that's about one a minute, a bit less than one a minute. And it's, it's not, I mean, that, that isn't a problem to take that number of photographs. Because obviously that was something that they wanted to do, to, to show where they'd been. You know, it's like anybody going on holiday. You take photographs of where you've been so you can show the folks back home what it was like. Presumably that's what they were doing. So I think there was a bit more to it than that. But they couldn't have been on the lunar surface to take those photographs that we're told that they did. And the reason for that is actually quite straightforward. But it was only something that I discovered just over in September 2018, just over a year ago, when I attended a lecture here given in London at the British Interplanetary Society by a gentleman by the name of Phil Pressel. Now, Phil Pressel was an engineer a very, very competent engineer who worked for a company called Elmer, Elmer Perkin in Danbury, Connecticut. And their job was to build photographic cameras to be flown on the Hexagon spy satellite, which would be launched in 1971. And it used photographic film because at that time, the digital equipment was not sufficiently advanced to be able to uh, to be used to obtain the images or the quality of the images that were required by 
the security services, CIA, the NSA, and so on, who wanted to find out what was happening in the Soviet Union. Now, Phil Pressel was extremely proud of his achievement, and he had every reason to be so, because he had developed, along with other people at Elmer Perkin, um, a twin camera system, so they could take stereo images, which from a stereo image you can determine the height of a rocket or the size of a building or the length of a ship. And the satellite was to be flown on a polar orbit launched from Vandenberg, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. On a polar orbit, I it would just circle the Earth from North Pole to South Pole, and as the Earth rotated underneath it, it would take photographs, and every 24 hours or so it could take photographs of the same place. So it was a good system. But one of the points that he made almost inadvertently, he said, well, of course, the film had to be kept pressurized. I thought, why does the film have to be kept pressurized? And the reason is that in a vacuum, photographic film outgasses, which is a technical term for basically it loses its chemicals. Photographic film is made of a chemical emulsion, which is coated onto a polyester base, and the chemical emulsion will outgas in a vacuum. So it had to be kept under a very small pressure, one pound per square inch pressure. Well, a spy plane, excuse me, Marcus, a spy plane that's flying around the world, uh, what's the altitude? 30, 32,000 feet, 38,000 feet? Uh, yeah, the uh, U-2 spy plane flew at about 60,000 feet. Ah, 60,000. So twice the size of, uh, twice the, the height of an airliner. Yes, it's twice the height of an airliner. Uh, okay. They fly at about 35,000 feet, which is just slightly higher than Mount Everest. Mount Everest is just short of 29,000 feet. And at that height, the air pressure is about five pound per square inch. You go up to about 60,000 feet, it's about one pound per square inch. So a spy plane flying at that altitude wouldn't actually have a problem. It's when you get beyond what's called the Kármán line. The Kármán line is, the, is the, the point at which space begins, if you like, and the atmosphere ends. That's at 62, 62 miles above the Earth's surface, quite high up, at 320,000 feet. If you get above that height, you're into, into space. You're not yet into deep space, but you, you're into space, and the International Space Station is currently orbiting at uh, about 150 miles up, maybe slightly higher. It varies its height. And at that height, the vacuum levels are quite severe not as severe as they are on the moon you get to the moon you've got real problems because the vacuum levels on the moon are at least double what they are at the international space station okay so they pressurized the the camera so that the the film would not there wouldn't be any outgassing isn't that as simple as that it's as simple as that and that's what occurred in the hexagon spy satellite um, there is in the spy satellite, which is a, quite a big thing. It's about the size of a school bus. Uh, it's about uh, 40, 50 foot long, 20 foot in diameter. It's quite a big piece of kit. Uh, it was launched on the uh, Titan III rocket from Vandenberg Air Force Base. As I say, it went into polar orbit. And inside this satellite, the Hexagon spy satellite, there was a separate container which held all the film stock and the cameras, 
and the tubing, the quite complex tubing through which the film was fed in order to take it from the photographic reels on which it was stored through the cameras. It was taken in front of the cameras. They had rotating mirrors because the, the satellite is orbiting quite fast. So you had to eliminate the apparent movement of the Earth beneath the satellite. It's a very complex system, but extremely effective. Now, the remarkable thing about Hexagon's Pi satellite is that once the photographs had been taken, the film was then wound on to what was referred to as buckets. There were four of them on each. There were, there were 19 Hexagon satellites launched over the following 18 years. The buckets were dropped from the satellite and get this, they were caught in giant fishing net type contraptions being flown by aircraft out of Hawaii and they were caught as they fell out of the sky. It's an extraordinary story. It's, it's quite word. true. They actually only missed one. One fell into the Pacific and they had to get it back so the Russians didn't get hold of it and find out what they were doing. So the long and the short of it here is, Marcus, you're saying that in order to prevent outgassing of the film on the moon, they would have had to have had an elaborate type of container in the vacuum of space to prevent that. And there's no evidence that they had anything like that. Is that the idea? That's exactly the point. Yes, in order to prevent the outgassing of the film and also in a vacuum photographic film or the, the backing of it, the, the, the base, the S-star base, gets very brittle and it wouldn't then go through the rather complex mechanism in the Hasselblad film magazines. Now, the Hasselblad cameras that they used on the moon, how were they, how were they modified? I'm, I'm, not, I'm guessing that they weren't the type of Hasselblad that, that you use. Uh, it, to, to be honest, they're fairly similar. Um, a, a Hasselblad camera is a magnificent piece of kit. It's built almost like a Swiss watch. It's extremely complex. You can go to a shop and buy one today, which will look quite similar, ironically, quite similar to the lunar Hasselblad cameras. It costs about $45,000, but uh, you can still go out and buy one if you want to. And they're very, very good cameras, mainly because the lenses were particularly good. They were made by Zeiss. And... The mechanism of the Hasselblad camera was modified slightly because uh, uh, if you can imagine the picture of an astronaut in his full spacesuit, because you can't wear half a spacesuit in space, you've got to wear the whole lot, the helmet, the gloves, the boots, <laughs> Indeed, the whole thing. Yes. <clears throat> if you're wearing a spacesuit, you can't get your head down to look through the viewfinder of the Hasselblad, which is on the top of the camera. And because it's also a single lens reflex camera, I you look through the lens in the same way that the light coming in and records on modern-day cameras on the CCD chip, the digital chip, in the older-style cameras. These are film cameras, and anybody who's never used a film camera, this will all sound very 20th century and, and very weird and historical, but it's the this is the case, this is what happened. So there's no viewfinder on this camera. And the click that you hear when you take a photograph is normally the, the mirror moving out of the way of the light coming in to hit the film behind it. So there was no mirror because you couldn't get your head down to look through it. So they didn't have a viewfinder. So they were just guessing. Well, they were pointing it with their body because the camera was mounted on the astronaut. There, there are many photographs showing astronauts wearing their Hasselblad cameras. They were mounted on a special bracket on their chest. So they would move their body to um, 
presumably point the camera at the place that they wanted a photograph. And would they be using an extremely wide lens just to give them so they would be more forgiving in terms of the framing? It was a slightly wide angle lens. It was a 60 millimeter lens on the Hasselblad. It's a Biogon lens, 60 millimeter, which is the equivalent of a 35 millimeter lens on a 35 millimeter camera. So it's a slight wide angle. Yes, it's quite right. And obviously with a wide angle lens, you can, you've got more room for error. Uh, you don't have to point it very accurately, which you would have to do if you're using a telephoto lens. And those were available for the Hasselblad camera. And on the later missions, they used 500 millimeter lenses, which are, have a very, very small angle of view. And what but about all, automatic focus? Did they have automatic focus? No, there was no automatic focus. The focusing you had to do by moving the what's called the focus ring, which is on the lens. You set your aperture, which is the uh, f2.8. 3.5, 5.6, f8, f11, and so on. You set that on the lens, and you set the shutter speed, 125th, 250th. You set that on the lens as well, and you had to do this manually. There was no automatic function. Wearing those enormous garden gloves. Yeah, those heavy-duty gardening gloves were, were very simple things to use to focus a camera with. Have you ever tried doing it? <laughs> no. Uh, let's just say, if you're having your wedding photographs taken, you wouldn't be very pleased to see the photographer wearing heavy-duty gardening gloves to focus his camera, would you? No, you wouldn't. No, indeed. And of those 121 photos, I don't know how many of those had, let's say, uh, if it was Neil Armstrong with the camera, I don't know how many of those were of Buzz Aldrin. Were there any with his head cut off? Because, you know, I remember those old cameras, my grandmother, they, she was always cutting our heads off in our pictures. <laughs> that was always one of the problems with not using a viewfinder. You tended to either cut the head off or get the thing off center. And of those 121 photographs, there are no heads cut off. There are one or two that are, shall we say, rather poorly composed, but that may be because I think the official description is inadvertent shutter release, which means that they fire the camera without pointing it at a particular subject. And none of them are out of focus? There are a couple that are out of focus, yes. They're not 100%, but they come close to being 100% accurate. Uh, they're well exposed. Now, right. there's a sequence of eight photographs. And most people are familiar with the uh, sequence of Buzz Aldrin climbing down the ladder of the lunar lander, which is called the Eagle. There's a series of eight photographs. And the first one is of his feet coming out through the door of the upper section of the lunar lander. And then you see him uh, standing on top of the porch and you come, he comes down the ladder. And then almost ridiculously Neil Armstrong who's taking the photographs decides he would much rather take a photograph of the rubbish bag which he had thrown out of the craft earlier and the foot pad of the lander presumably Marcus, I gotta jump in here pardon the interruption okay. we'll take a quick time out we'll come back and we'll uh, work our way through those uh, those eight photographs as That's Buzz good. Aldrin is descending down from the eagle onto the lunar surface Marcus Allen is the distributor of the UK edition of Nexus magazine publisher distributor we'll be back with more of the conspiracy show right after this Shaking the world and seeing what falls 
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Marcus Allen stays with us, the British distributor and publisher of the UK edition of Nexus Magazine. Uh, how do we subscribe, Marcus? Go to the website, nexusmagazine.com. Good bookshops will have it. Anywhere that sells magazines should be able to get it for you if they don't have it in stock. But go to the website, nexusmagazine.com, and you will find on there how to subscribe. It's very simple, very straightforward, and extremely good value. Indeed, indeed. Back to the lunar landing module, the Eagle, Buzz Aldrin is coming down, and Neil Armstrong takes a series of eight photographs. And one of those photographs, you say, is this trash bag, I guess, that Buzz has thrown out of the module. Tell me about that. That's right, yes. It was thrown out before they actually, after they'd opened the door, before the astronauts had allegedly come out of the lander. I say there's a series of eight photographs. Six of them feature Buzz Aldrin, and two of them feature, one of them features the rubbish bag, and the other features the foot of the lander. Presumably they had to make sure it wasn't damaged. So quite what they would have done if it had been damaged, no, history doesn't relate, because there's no rescue service on the moon. Now, these eight photographs, as I say, there are four websites that I know of that, that carry the full Apollo series of images. I happen to use the Lunar and Planetary Institute website. I just prefer the way they've laid it out. And you can see these photographs in the sequence they were taken. Now, any photographer will know if you'd use photographic film, once you've taken the photographs and you developed the film, you wanted to see what the images were that you had taken and you would produce what's called a contact sheet for the simple expedient of spreading out all the negatives onto a sheet of photographic paper, exposing some light to it so it, it exposed the photographic paper, and you could then have a look at all the photographs you had taken in the sequence you had taken. Right. It's a positive image of the film strip. There's no enlarging or anything. That's right. No, no enlarging. It's just a positive image. It's the same size as the negative. Most people would be using 35 millimeter negatives, which are relatively small. The Hasselblad used 70 millimeter negatives or positives in the case of the color film, negatives in the case of black and white. And these were larger, so they gave very good quality images because the larger the negative, the better the quality and the higher the resolution. But if you look at the photographs on the websites where you can see them all in sequence, all 121 on what's called magazine number 40, there weren't 40 magazines, it just happened to be the number that NASA chose to identify it. Magazine 40, it's on AS 11, 40, and then there are 121 photographs on that magazine. Anyway, you can go onto the website, you can see all the photographs taken, and on the lunar surface, in total, there were 5,771 taken by the 12 astronauts who walked on the lunar surface, we're told. Those photographs exist. You can go on to, online and you can find them. The point about this is that Neil Armstrong is using a camera that has no viewfinder. He's taken Buzz Aldrin coming down from the ladder. Now, if you look at it, uh, you'll see that the ladder down which Buzz Aldrin is climbing is in shadow. The sun is on the other side of the lander. You can see it quite easily. I mean, you can see the shadow of the lander on some of the later photographs. The point is that he has to, Neil Armstrong, not only has to focus the camera on Buzz Aldrin on various positions on the ladder, he then has to change the aperture and the focus to photograph the rubbish bag, and he has to do it again, change the focus and the aperture, because the 
landing leg he takes photographs of is in direct sunlight, so it would be a smaller aperture to compensate for that. The photographs are very, very well exposed. They're also very well framed. How did Neil Armstrong do it? We all know he's a very, very good test pilot, but was he a brilliant photographer? These are professional-level photographs, professional standard photographs. Right, they're just too good. And uh, again, with the wearing the big bulky helmet, wearing the, those big, we'll call them gardening gloves, you're, you're just not going to be able to manipulate the focus ring, the the aperture, uh, and so forth to that degree. Now, okay, so that aside, let's talk about the mechanics of the camera. You see, the Hasenblatt is built like a, a Swiss watch. It's a very precise mechanical uh, device. How would that camera operate on the extreme temperatures in the, in this, I'm not sure what the temperature variance is in the sun and in the shade on the moon, but it's a tremendous variance. There is, there's a huge range of temperature, uh, which is one of the problems. The, the, the temperature in the sun on the lunar surface, because there's no atmosphere on the moon, which is correct, there is no atmosphere, therefore light from the sun would immediately be at plus 120 degrees centigrade, higher than the boiling point of water. If you move into the shadow, in this case of the lunar lander, the temperature will immediately fall to minus 120 degrees centigrade, i.e. colder than any temperature that we experience here on Earth. The the lowest temperature we experience on Earth is in uh, Antarctica, which is minus 80 degrees centigrade. So you've got an extreme range of temperature. Now, because there is no atmosphere on the moon, a vacuum, besides its other properties, is a very good insulator. But the effect of sunlight hitting any object on the lunar surface will be to heat it up instantly, or as fast as the the heat can be absorbed. Heat will be radiated away, but there's no convection like we have here on Earth where you've got an atmosphere and there's no conduction, which is where you've got heat traveling through an object. You only get radiant energy. One of the other problems with this camera, as I say, is a brilliant piece of equipment, but we know from the photographs what we see of the Hasselblad camera and the, there are film cameras as well mounted in the lunar lander to mar a 16 millimeter film camera which operates in much the same way as a stills camera there is no pressurized container around the camera none whatsoever and it would be visible if it existed it doesn't exist there is no pressurization of any of the Hasselblad cameras or any of the Mara film cameras so we we have a real problem here how were those photo- how did that photographic film survive in the vacuum of space on the moon and, and how does how do all the, me- the the mechanics of the camera i don't know have you used the Hasselblad in extreme conditions here on earth I've used a Hasselblad in fairly warm conditions, yes, but just a, a, a warm summer day over in England, which maybe people might say, well, that's not going to be very warm, is it? But it's, one can operate a camera in a fairly comfortable range of temperatures. If you're starting to use it in Antarctica or in, in really severe weather, like I believe you get in Canada, 
you might start getting problems because one of the things that happen is that film starts to go very brittle in low temperature and it starts to break. That's why when it outgasses in a vacuum, it starts to break. Right. What about the mechanics of the camera itself, like the, the shutter itself? Yeah. The shutter is, is mounted in the lens of the camera and it's what's called a leaf. Uh, it's it's a, uh, an iris shutter. It, it opens. There are about six different parts to the shutter. Now, these are normally lubricated, as are all the mechanical components which which advance that when the film is exposed it has to be then the film has to be moved to the next exposure and that's done by mechanical means driven by batteries it's the only automatic feature on the Hasselblad camera the film advance so you've got batteries in this camera in a vacuum I don't think so those batteries would start to uh, leak quite severely also any any lubrication of the moving parts and there are gears inside the magazine which advance the film those have to be lubricated because without lubrication metal starts to bind together lubrication in a vacuum will immediately start to outgas or boil which is what water does in a vacuum it boils because you 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 lure the point at which the boiling can occur Right. Outgassing is where the volatile elements of any liquid are basically forced out by the vacuum. There's a, um, just as an aside, there is a phenomena called cold welding, where two metals, if they touch in a vacuum, are instantly welded together. It's to do with the lack of... Uh, any molecules which will separate them. Ah, okay. you put I wasn't familiar with that. Yeah, if if there's no if 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 you're in a vacuum, there is no uh, air to separate anything you put in, and metals touching each other will cold weld, which is a phenomenon which was uh, only discovered when people started going into space. Aha! Uh-huh. So I, I I got the picture again. No pun intended. There is no way, unless there were significant modifications. To the, these cameras, that they would be able to operate in the in the vacuum of space, in the extreme temperatures in space. Exactly. And and also one uh, one other point, when you, when you're going to take a photograph, you've got to press the shutter button. And on a sh- on a Hasselblad, the shutter button is always on the front of the camera. Now this was modified, so it was about one inch square, but you still couldn't see it from inside a spacesuit. So how did you know you'd actually reached it? You were supposed to feel around and prod around until you made sure you got your finger in the right place. <laughs> and also, you didn't know if you'd taken a photograph because the the film counter dial is on the side of the camera and you couldn't see that from inside the spacesuit. Aha. All right, so, Marcus, we'll take another time out. We'll come back and uh, we'll talk about the film and how that might survive radiation. Remember taking film through the... Uh, the security checkpoint at the airport oh yes ruin your vacation pictures all right we'll uh, discuss on the other side marcus allen is the british distributor and publisher of the uk edition of nexus magazine back with more in a moment don't be afraid of the dark 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Marcus Allen is with us, a uh, British distributor, publisher of the UK edition of Nexus magazine, and uh, he says there are a lot of problems uh, with uh, attempting to take photographs on the surface of the moon. Um, this is a short segment. It's about five minutes here. So let's talk about the film. And uh, you mentioned that it gets brittle and so forth. But what about the radiation? We, again, we're all familiar with uh, those of us old enough to remember taking film through the airport. You uh, you, you don't want it to get um, exposed to the uh, the X-ray machine there. Uh, so you would often you would pass the high speed film anyway. You would pass that uh, to the uh, you know the person, and they would bypass the machine and so forth. So talk to me about the radiation and film. Well, that's that, that's one of the key points about the uh, the whole questioning of the Apollo missions, because aside from various other problems which you might come on to later, one of which is reentry, the radiation experienced in space about 500 miles above the Earth's surface you have something called the Van Allen radiation belts which are belts of radiation and these are quite severe problems and as you say if you if you if you didn't take your photographic film out of your camera and pass it through to the attendants so that they could hand examine it the film could be damaged unless you had it in a lead line box which is the other way of doing it because photographic film is susceptible to radiation. That's, that's what electromagnetic radiation is called. That's what visible light is. It's radiation. Films are designed to record radiation, but only in certain, at certain levels. If you have too much radiation, you'll damage your film. It'll become what's called fogged, which is, uh, makes it look as if it's a bit, um, uh, taken in a, in a cloud or, a, bunch of steam or something like that and and this was demonstrated very very clearly at the at chernobyl nuclear disaster where several people did have cameras they did take photographs at the time that the reactor blew up and the film and the photographs which they obtained were seriously damaged by the radiation which they were experiencing i mean it affected them as well several people died as a result of it but photographic film can be damaged by radiation. And this is why, if you ever bought a, a roll of photographic film, and we are talking photographic film, not digital here, photographic film, you would buy it, and it had an expiry date on it. Why would photographic film have an expiry date? It, it can't rot, it can't, it's not a piece of food. The reason it, was, uh, it had an expiry date was because the manufacturers of the film, Kodak or Fuji or Ilford or Agfa, they didn't want their customers to come back to them a few years later and complain that the film that they bought, say, five years earlier, really wasn't producing very good pictures. They all looked a bit sort of foggy and, and contrast levels weren't right. And the reason is that background radiation, if a photographic film is exposed to it for long enough, it will absorb sufficient radiation to damage the film, just if it sat in your drawer at home. So radiation is a major problem. Now, we're t there's a great deal of discussion about how much radiation is there in space. And uh, the normal answer will be, well, it's like getting a couple of chest X-rays and it's nothing to worry about. Don't, you know, don't concern yourself with it. You know, the astronauts are all fine. Look, they all went to the moon. They got back. They must be all right. So it can't be much of a problem. 
That's the normal argument given by people who support NASA. And fair enough. And uh, obviously you, you want to feel that uh, an organization as competent as NASA is doing the best thing. And, and they must have known that uh, radiation wasn't a problem or they wouldn't have sent astronauts out into, onto the moon, would they? Well, why didn't the Russians go to the moon? The reason they didn't go to the moon was because they knew the dangers of radiation. And they said, we will not be sending any cosmonauts to the moon until we can ensure their safe return due to the dangers of radiation. So they knew about the problems. And, and now, none of the photographs show any evidence of fogging whatsoever. Not only the one, not only the 121 from Apollo 11, but let's talk about how many did you say across all the Apollo missions? 15,000 or something? There were 5,771 5, photographs taken on the lunar surface. There were about another 25,000 taken in the, uh, uh, by various astronauts as they went to and from the moon, <coughs> the moon and in the, in orbit around the moon in the command module. So there were quite a lot of photographs taken beyond Earth, shall we say, or allegedly beyond Earth, because if radiation is as big a problem as it appears to be, and there is still a great deal of dispute about this, then how come nobody else has been to the moon? Nobody's been to the moon for 50 years. No, no. 1972 was the last alleged mission. I say alleged because I have very serious doubts that it occurred the way we were told. So let's say for in 50 years, 50 years ago, that was when uh, the Apollo missions occurred, Apollo 8 in 1968 and Apollo 17 in 1972. All right. they, all, they, they all did this incredible trip to the moon. They didn't experience any effects of radiation. None of the photographs taken in space by the astronauts appeared to have any effect of radiation damage at all. And I've looked at hundreds of, if not thousands, of photographs that were taken. Okay, Marcus, I've got to jump in. We've got to take another time out, and uh, we'll come back. And as we approach the top of the hour, we'll open up those phone lines, and we'll take questions and comments in Hour 2 with Marcus Allen, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. All right, we are back with uh, Marcus Allen. And uh, Marcus, tell us once again how to uh, subscribe or get a copy of Nexus Magazine. Right, Nexus Magazine. Uh, go to our website, nexusmagazine.com. All the instructions are there about subscribing from any country in the world, whether it's Canada, America, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina. We have subscribers everywhere around the world. We distribute 40 to 40 countries from the UK, and there's another 40 countries from Australia. Because Nexus is actually an Australian magazine. I publish and distribute the UK edition, which is the same as the uh, Australian edition, the same as the North American edition. That comes out on a regular basis, and it's definitely worth reading. There are two types of people in the world, those who read Nexus and those who are about to. <laughs> Indeed. Nice nice sales job. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, now, uh, much has been made of the shadows on the moon. Uh, the fact that it, the, the shadows are, uh, they seem to be coming from different light sources. Uh, 
but others have countered, well, you've got two things. First of all, you've got a sun, which is 93 million miles away, low, sort of low in the horizon. And then you've got the sort of the irregular surface of the moon, uh, which can produce uh, irregular shadows. And I mean, that there's some truth to that. I've seen that, you know, if you're in a bumpy road and the shadows can be irregular. How do you, if this was in fact uh, faked and shot in a, let's say a sound studio with, with lighting grids and so forth, would, I mean, did they have the technology back then to do something like that? That's, that's the big question to me. In 50 years ago, did they have the technology uh, to, to fake something like that? Of course they did. Of course they did. Um, I've seen 80 foot, gor- I've seen 80 foot gorillas climb the Empire State Building. <laughs> I've seen dinosaurs chasing kids around kitchens in Jurassic Park. Uh, the technology exists, but when we watch that sort of thing, the, the dinosaurs and, the, and King Kong, we know it's a film. We know it's fake. We suspend our disbelief and we enjoy the film because it's great fun. But the moon landings are portrayed as being real. They're documentary. It's a, it's a record of an event which occurred. And that's what we are expected to believe. But the point is that documentary evidence can be as fictitious as Hollywood at its finest. It's perfectly possible to do it. Now, about three years ago, a film was posted onto the Internet. It was called Make Believe Smoke and Mirrors. It was two hours, 44 minutes long. It was an extremely technically advanced piece of filmmaking, and it purported to show how the whole Apollo photograph sequences, film sequences, were created. And it was done in a very sophisticated way. I mean, most people will say, well, if you film something at um, double the speed and play it back at half the speed, you get what what would appear to be slow motion. Overcranking, they call that, yes. Overcranking. Now, that's a very simplified version of what was identified, that there are seven different slow motion speeds in the Apollo films, depending on where the astronauts happen to be in relation to the camera, where they're close to the camera, where they're far away from the camera. There's a piece of equipment called an optical printer. An optical printer, you can take film and you can duplicate that film. If you're shooting at, say, 144 frames per second, which is quite fast, using an optical printer, you can extract every other frame or every fifth frame or every tenth frame and project those as if it was the real thing because nobody can tell the difference. In, order, is, in other words, this, this overcranking, this slow motion is to replicate uh, the zero gravity in, in or near zero gravity in space. Yes, did they have uh, those optical printers, though, in 1969, Marcus? Yes, they did. Oh, yes, they existed. They were being used. <clears throat> it was being transferred from film onto video. And that existed as well. The it, it, It's an extraordinary accomplishment. If if what this film, Smoke and Mirror, Make Believe Smoke and Mirror shows is real, it explains exactly how the whole Apollo deception was carried out. 
Now, as to the reasons why it needed to be carried out, I mean, that was maybe a separate discussion. But there were very valid reasons why it had to happen. Primarily because they couldn't actually get astronauts onto the lunar surface for real and back again alive. Because they didn't know how to protect them from the radiation which we know exists in space. The galactic cosmic rays, the solar particle events, all the uh, problems that, one, that humans would have in space once outside the protection of the Earth's atmosphere and the Van Allen radiation belts. Because that, that has only ever happened on Apollo. If it was that easy to do it, don't you think that the Soviet Union might have done it, China might have done it, India might have done it, Japan might have done it? Of course they would. One would have thought that uh, it, since 1973, that was uh, the last Apollo mission, uh, one would have thought that in, that in those 47 years, we would have done better than just an unmanned mission. Um, which which begs the question that I I suppose why wouldn't the Russians uh, because you know they were supposedly defeated in the space race during the Cold War why wouldn't they have blown the whistle on the on on NASA that's a very good question that's a question that's probably the most frequently asked question because I uh, one of the things I do is public presentations on this I, I quite enjoy doing them and that's the most frequently asked question why didn't the Russians blow the whistle if what you're saying is true and the reason is very simple why would they have blown the whistle uh, would it would it embarrass the, the Americans no it probably wouldn't they just say oh you're sore losers we beat you to the moon guys you know get over it but there are, there are other political reasons as well primarily because Apollo was a political um, mission. As announced by John Kennedy in May 1961, we're going to land a man on the moon before the decade is out and return him safely to the Earth. They didn't know they could do it then. had no idea. Alan Shepard had been up 100 miles and come down. That was the extent of American human spaceflight. Now, come forward a few years, and the Soviet Union has one major export, one major product to export, and that's natural gas. It has some oil as well, but natural gas is the main one. What date was the first major contract for the supply of Soviet Union natural gas into Western Europe? Don't forget the Cold War's going on at this time. But here they are, about to sign a contract to supply West Germany... Hungary and Italy with natural gas. September 1968. <laughs> Do you think that the Soviet Union, which were, let's say, they'd had some, a very unpleasant experience during the Second World, do you think they were going to jeopardize this good export market, which would help the whole country? We're saying well, a few Americans prancing around on the moon, don't believe a word of it, but, you know, we prefer to get the money for our natural gas. Of course they're going to do that. They're, they're pragmatic people. They're not going to make any big song and dance about it. They knew perfectly well that no American had landed on the moon. What was the point of, of upsetting them? America were a powerful country. They still are a powerful country. They don't like coming second to anybody. The Soviet Union are, are much more willing to go along with it. And anyway, who in the Soviet Union at the time of Apollo would have been able to have the authority to go to the 
president of the Soviet Union, the general secretary of the uh, Politburo, in this case, Leonard Brezhnev, and say, we don't think the Americans are, are actually telling the truth. Who would have the authority to do it? There was nobody. The guy driving the Soviet space program was a guy called Sergei Korolev, and he had died very suddenly and unexpectedly in January 1966 when an operation uh, went wrong. There was no mystery about it. There was nobody who would who could who had the authority to take over which is why one of the reasons why the soviet space program stalled for several years marcus i've got to jump in we're heading into the uh, the top of the hour okay. marcus you'll stay with us we'll open up the phone lines take questions and comments and we'll uh, continue to delve into this uh, fascinating subject area was the lunar landing a hoax and is the proof in the photographs back with more stay with us